Welcome to episode 14 of Bootstrapped. I'm Ian Landsman from Userscape, and I'm here with Andre Butov of Antair, as always. And this week we have a special guest, Scott Watermasek uh, from Kickoff Labs. And we're going to just kind of chat about his experience uh, bootstrapping his company and what they're up to and uh, as well as our kind of normal bantering, Andre's got a few uh, Uber deck things to fill us in on, so should uh, should be exciting. So let's kick it off with uh, with Scott. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. It's uh, we actually met up at Bacon Biz Conf, which I've talked about on here a couple weeks back, and uh, just had a, a good conversation about some of this stuff, and thought it would be great to have you on. So it's uh, it's great to have you here. Awesome. A little bit of perspective. Scott is in New Jersey. That's right. And I'm in Long Island. And Ian is just north of the North Pole. We're keeping it. We're keeping it northeast. <laughs> we're a little triangle here in the northeast. Yeah. yeah exactly. Um, um, so uh, hold on. Kickoff Labs just celebrated third anniversary, right? Uh, no. So well, I mean, the, so the, the third June twenty fourth, we've been you know we've been around for. So we're. So, so two plus years, a little over two, two years. Two plus years. Two plus years. Okay. How's it going? Nice. Uh, it's going good. Yeah, we're still growing and still, yeah, love what we do. So, um, and so can't you, complain. You and a partner, right? So maybe you could give us some, give us the kind of nickel backstory of like how you met <laughs> your partner and what, why you guys decided to take this on. And sure. And, so, um, uh, so Josh and I worked together um, at a, a previous company. You know, we were both employees there. Um, I was a very early employee, and Josh came on um, a little bit later. But we worked together there for about four years. Um, and as you know, most companies do, they eventually take on a personality of their own. And so at a previous company, it was a great place, and it's still around, and it's still growing and doing their own good thing. We both, um, you know, kind of accidentally, um, I guess you could say. Um, decided that it was time for us to pursue um, pursue something different, and we we both kind of knew um, independently that we wanted to do our own thing. Um, I've always worked minus a short ten month uh, you know kind of mistake. Always worked at a company that was a hundred employees or less um, since I mm-hmm. you know graduated from college. Um, Josh's background is the complete opposite of that. He worked at Microsoft for eight or ten years or so. So you know, oh, wow. so he's he's worked at really big companies, um, and then. The previous company was a little bit small. It was much smaller, um, and so we both decided it was time to do something different. We both had left that company, you know, right around the same time. Josh about a month or so before I did, a month and a half before I did, um, and so we just kind of, you know, we were we were good friends and had we both had worked virtually for this company. So Josh is out in the Seattle area, and uh, like I said I'm in New Jersey. The company who worked for is in Dallas. Um, and so we were pretty good at, at working together, um, especially with a, a large different, uh, distance between us. Um, I had similar mindsets as far as what we were looking for in a company. We both have young families uh, or young kids you know, in our family. Um, we, we both like having time outside of work and control of our schedule and destiny and all those other kind of good things. And so we decided that we were going to try to build something together. We had no idea what we were going to build. Um, but we came up with a list of 20, 25 things we thought we could build. Everything from collaboration-based apps, which is what we've done at you know, our previous company, and we both had kind of grown a little bit tired of, of that market you know, as well, um, all the way up to you know, the kind of classic developer thing of… Bug you know, trackers. Bug yeah, trackers. Not, not bug trackers, <laughs> but we had young kids, and so we're like, you know, 
we're going to do educational apps on the iPad or iPhone because they all suck. Right, right. Um, and yeah, I think you make an argument for it for most of them not still being very good. But you know, we're going to do something. You know, you know, we this wide gamut of things we we're going to do. There's about twenty things, um, and one of them was this landing. I think we called it SplashPages.com or something, which you know the domain obviously wasn't available. Um, right. But it was a tool for testing ideas. Um, I had previously read the Four Hour uh, Work Week by Tim Ferriss. And then Rob Walling had written a book um, a while ago. I think it's called Start, Stall, Start Small, Stay Small. And they both, as, as part of these books, advocated putting an idea out there using Google Ads to track if you can get people to click on a link and then you get people to click on a buy button or sign up an email address or something. Um, but they both were written at the time when you could do, you know, you could buy a lot of Google keywords for five cents, um, right. 10 cents, 25 cents. Um, so we, we kind of came up with the idea and said, no, we're going to build this product to help us test ideas. Ideation was still, you know, big at the time. Um, I don't know if there were still those IBM commercials with, you know, people just laying on the floor trying to ideate or whatever. Right. But, you know, but that was, that was still a, a big thing at that time. And so we said, we're going to build this product, um, you know, to help test ideas. And, you know, as most products do, or, you know, they go through, you know, a series of, of changes and ideas or whatever. Um, we quickly realized that, Google, you know, wasn't a good avenue for that. It just it was very expensive to just throw up ten pages, and you know, and you just weren't going to get nickel clicks. And at right. the end of the day, Google is not a huge fan, um, you know, of that. They, Google really doesn't like an email form um, at the end of you know, as the as the sole thing you do on, on any page at the end of you know one of their their searches. And right. so the idea, you know, kind of <laughs> tossed and turned a little bit and got focused more on on landing pages. But our kind of overriding thought at the end of the day was. Even if Kickoff Labs is a colossal failure, we can't get any customers, can't make any money. Um, at least we have a tool to help us test those other nineteen or twenty ideas uh, <laughs> and to figure out where to go, you know, where to go next. Because the reality is, I mean, we were you just guess all the ideas seem good. I mean, we came up with them. So you know, we one of us thought, you know, each and every one of them was a you know was a solid you know business idea. So. Right. Did you so, use a landing page thingy to test whether Kickoff Labs would be good or not? We did. So we, you know, so we, we put a landing page out there um, and it's just like silly things we did. I, I mean, we, we didn't even own like, you know, the right domain. And so we just used random domains and, and tried stuff out. But yeah, we, we used our own um, landing page. I mean, we, we quick, as quickly as we could use, you know, Kickoff Labs mm -hmm. and got to the point where we were using what eventually became Kickoff Labs. What we did, we, we put it out there. We got um, just a couple hundred people to sign up. Um, not nearly enough, um, I think, to... Uh, you know, for the if, if you look back and say the quality of jobs that we left, you know, stock options were left on the table and the salary and that kind of stuff. Um, to put everything into this 200 person list, which uh, in in hindsight ended up being way too many friends and family, you know, of the 200. Right. You know, probably we, we we could have done a, a better you know a better job with it, but you know, I think in the end it, it worked out for us. But so, um, how did you guys? I'm always interested to hear like so when you made that decision like. Had you guys been saving up? Did you just quit? Did you do it on the side a little bit and yeah. then quit? Did you, you know, did you have like a month of money saved or six months or, you know, how'd all that work? Cause you obviously had families and, yep. uh, you know, you weren't like 18 and living on your parents' couch or whatever. So, yep. So we were both boring and bold. Right. Uh, boring in a sense of, uh, you know, it's something we both had, you know, had known we wanted to do, right? So the company I worked at, I said, was a good place. Um, about two years into it, I said, you know, I was like, I really want to start my own company someday. It, I was there for like seven years, a better part of seven years. And then I was like, you know, I really want to start my, my own thing. Um, and, uh, 
and the guy had started the company. He had, a, he, I believe, he had put like his house up in, in some ways, like collateral to get me you know, money to start, you know, right. to start this business. And I said, I'm not that person. I'm, <laughs> I'm more risk adverse to that, and even more so, my wife is beyond risk adverse. Right? She, it's just not her, you know, her thing. Yeah, you know, sure. for her, we both could keep, you know, keep corporate jobs, work our way, you know, hit 55, take early retirement. It, you know, everything's great. Um, right. You know, we'll have a white picket fence. Very traditionalist in, in that sense. And so I had been saving, um, you know, along the way. We had done things like we got rid of, you know, we had no car payments. Um, mm-hmm. We never had credit card debt, got rid of student loans, paid everything off. And so we had um, a good cushion, I, I guess, you know, you could say of money to uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of, you know, fall back on. Um, the other benefit for, and Josh, you know, did some more things. The other benefit for both of us is both our wives, you know, also worked as well. And so we were dual income families. Um, so, you know, I so said we were, you know, early thirties, mid thirties, um, you know, when we both did this and you said we had kids and mortgages and all sorts of other things to pay for, um, college, you know, savings plans, whether or not that's a good idea or not. Um, you know, we'll figure it out later. <laughs> yeah, um, we covered that. We covered that before. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so, so we were, you know, as we're, we're boring in that sense where, you know, it wasn't 27, walked into the office and said, I'm out of here. Right. I mean, yeah. I worked remotely, you know, so, you know, I, I didn't have it that bad to begin with. Right. Um, and so we're that, so we're very boring in that sense, but bold in the sense of we, we quit our jobs. Uh, so we did it kind of independently and kind of, even though we were friends, you know, we didn't really find out until, you know, it was, we'd both left that, you know, that this would work out for us in that way. Um, but we went and we went with kickoff labs. It was a full-time venture. So a hundred percent of our time. Um, and, and for me, that's the, that's the path I generally advocate to people. Um, because I, I just really think you, to, to really launch something right. Um, you just need to have, be able to focus on it. Um, there's a lot of you know, folks who have been successful doing it the other way. Uh, if you talk to people at BaconConf and MicroConf, I'd gone um, a couple months before that. There's a lot of people who were doing things on the side or mixing and matching consulting and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but for us, I just I couldn't see us being as successful if we had done it um, on the side or if it was part-time. Like the way we wanted to grow and the type of company we wanted um, – we also would have been breaking um, employee contracts if we had built something on the side at our, our previous place. So that would have, that wouldn't have been an option either way. Right. Um, but uh, I just I, I couldn't see it working out for us if we weren't fully you know vested in the venture. Um, also, with both of us being developers and the market's always tight for you know for for good developers um, and having strong development skills, I was pretty confident that uh, you know things didn't work out. Right? I, I wasn't you know. I, you know, I wasn't going to go without you know making money right. um, for long, so it, it wasn't as as big of a leap as it, it might be for somebody um, in a marketing space or, or something like that. But I still think at the end of the day, if you have good skills um, and something you want to do, it's, it's it's worth a shot because if if you're good, you're good, and you know people that think you're good, um, you can find something else to do. Um, you know, at the end, you got to do what you have to do for your family, but. Uh, I, th- I think those uh, startup stories that f- from guys and or girls in their thirties with family are much more interesting than than like the eye candy startup stories yeah. of, of of kids, you know, Zuckerberg I mean, or whatever, in their uh, teens or even twenties. I mean, that's my my wife's biggest thing. Right? When I said I was actually, I mean, she knew I was going to do it at some point. Like I said she would have been completely fine. <laughs> Without doing it, she's she's very risk adverse. But I think at the time, my daughter was like three. So I could have done this a couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, you know, it 
it worked. I think it worked out pretty well. So, uh, were you guys anywhere close to the wall right before you launched, or did you have some more? Like, did you have some more opportunity to do a second product uh, if this one failed? Uh, we, I mean, we probably could have done a second one. It's, it's just a matter of. I, I, I think Josh has done some other podcasts where he said, you know, him and his wife were. Yeah, he had a certain amount of money he could play with, at, mm-hmm. and for us, we were a little bit more laid back, um, you know, with our approach to it. But uh, now like we both put in, so we said we we're going to do kickoff labs. Um, we both put in, I think it was like $4,000. Mm-hmm. We, we put into like a joint, you know, kickoff labs account right. and said, you know, this is the money we have to, you know, to play with, you know, to build this business. Um, if it, if we run out of that $8,000, then we're, we'll rethink it. Um, you know, what comes next at, at that point in time. And so thankfully we never, yeah, we never used that, you know, that full, you know, eight thousand dollars. So we were able to earn back that, you know, that eight, we were able to earn back at least that eight thousand before, um, yeah, it's before zero. we spent that eight thousand. Yeah. In the in the land of of VC funding and all that, I think people are sometimes surprised how much how little money it takes to to bootstrap a company. Like you said eight thousand yeah. in two thousand five six when I was incorporating Ontario, I put down a grand, just completely mm-hmm. arbitrary, and I don't think I took a dime out of that grand. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're crazy though. I don't think you're you're not a normal <laughs> individual, but I mean, yeah, I think we were like <clears throat> something like ten thousand or something. We kind of thought like, okay, like, and I don't think we spent it all either. And I think I spent half of it on like a really good computer, <laughs> like, yeah. just like development tools and software and stuff. But like. Uh, in a server back when I started Userscape, I think we actually purchased a physical server and put it in a co-location place. So that was a few bucks, but um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a, when you're willing to just do the sweat equity, you know, and just put in your time on it and do everything as is the case with most bootstrappers. It's not really definitely not too much about the money other than just like, I think the biggest challenge financially is more, not so much the business, but just, you have a certain lifestyle that you've had a good job and you're used to that good lifestyle and you have a decent house and you have, you know, newer cars and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, so now there's that, just that fear and that risk of like, okay, I'm used to spending X a month. You know, I could do that for a certain number of months, but you know, obviously if we don't start making money, then that's going to get tight. So I think that's really the, the kind of key aspect. And I know Andre and myself both had the same situation where our, our wives worked and, uh, that's definitely a huge help to still have some baseline income coming in. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the biggest thing was just giving up its whatever, you know, opportunity costs, right? So it's, we didn't pay ourselves for the first nine months. Right. Um, we, we took nothing, even as a mistake, because we were an LLC. And so we should have paid ourselves out whatever was left in that, you know, right. account after the first year. Right. We were paying taxes on it anyway. Sure. Um, and, you know, we didn't do that either. Um, so that's the biggest part is that, you know, it's just that, Leaving the money on the table, the four thousand wasn't that big of a deal. And if sure. you know, and I would tell people, if you couldn't put four thousand or five thousand, at you, know, at least financially, you're not ready to to do it. If you, know, if you don't have at least something set aside, you know, you know yeah, you got to be able to give it a fair chance. Yeah. Um, you don't want to like quit your job and be two months into it and be like, oh man, I got to start looking for a job right now because you know we're we're getting tight already. You definitely have to. You know, ideally plan out at least a little bit better than that. And that was the more shocking thing of when I, especially when I was at MicroConf and a little bit at the BaconConf, was how many people had started four, five, and six things in that in the last year. They they built yeah. something for a month or two, 
And then either interest or money would get tight and they would have to walk away from it. And then they would start something else. They would right. you know, come back to it. And it is, it's the, the persistence is such a, a big part of it. Um, and there's no magic formula to know when you should, you know, when you should quit and when you should keep at it. Yeah. But uh, it's certainly, it's more than a month or two, um, I think, for, for most companies. Yeah, especially in bootstrapping where you can't, artificially create demand really or you know it's difficult to do those kind of things you're not going to spend a bunch of money on advertising or anything like that and like even even especially i think it's even more true now with SaaS apps because like like when i started userscape and we did help spot like our first month we sold like four thousand dollars in sales and i was like this is great because you know you paid everything up front and it was like an enterprise product so people are paying us a thousand dollars or whatever for for something but like (laughs) You know, like with Snappy, you know, it's like, okay, here's 20 bucks. Like, yeah. okay, well, that's not going to, that doesn't really do anything for me. Like those first couple people each spending 20, 40, like, you know, you really have to build it up. So you really have to wait that out, you know, for a while until that all comes together and, you know, adds up to a sufficient, you know, amount of money to really kind of run your operation. So I definitely think patience is underrated these days. Uh, Scott, I wanted to ask you, um, the, the nature of, reco- of your business is that basically you're providing a way for people to build these landing pages to evaluate product ideas, and I guess you give them statistics on the back end of that. Yep. Um, do you find that a lot of your – I don't know how deep you look into your customer data as an aggregate, but do you find a lot – because of that uh, trend of software company startups wanting to do that sort of thing that a lot of your customers wind up being – software companies yeah i mean today we i would say we're we're about 50 percent or so you know kind of startups you know as as startups being our customers and we actually we wrote a a blog post about three or four months into kickoff labs telling people why having startups as your customers or why why startups aren't good customers it's not they're bad people (laughs) it's just you know they they fail or they move on, um, especially for you know for for early stage you know customers. They're successful and so they close their account and they move on, or they're unsuccessful and they're you know kind of pissed at you and they close their account and they move on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the things we've been working on just product wise is is just kind of making it so we're we're more of a partner for for companies long term, um, and then trying to do things just outside of the startup space. So we're working more and more with marketing agencies, um, individuals doing marketing. Um, and, and that type of you know stuff. So, because I mean, it seems like the homepage is now geared a little bit more like, like so. Obviously, you have the like, hey, I'm starting a company. Here's my landing page type customer, mm-hmm. but it could also be used for like, I assume landing pages for maybe specific campaigns or yep. things of that nature. Where it you know, and I'm sure this would be ideal for you guys. Like you know, whether it's a, more of an ongoing use as opposed to just oh, it's up for three months before we launch and then. You know, we Correct. take it down, and that's it. Correct. Yeah, I mean, that's. I mean, that's the. the I mean, on one hand, we, we love the startup side of it, right? Because we're startup, startup ourselves, and sure. we like the market and the people. And it's, you know, one of the things, one of the goals we had in launching a company is we just wanted to try to figure out how we could do something good, something just a little bit noble, um, right. and helping other people kind of you know reach their goals or whatever was was kind of what we hung our our hat on. Um, but at the end of the day, right? I mean, we're just like everybody else where we have, you know, bills to pay and, and other places, you know, we want to travel and just fun things we want to do in life. And to do that, you generally need to make 
um, you know, a little bit of money. Right. Um, and so getting, you know, aligning, aligning ourselves better um, so that way we're, we're more of an asset for, for larger companies um, who do, you know, lots of different campaigns and different pages and that kind of stuff. Um, it's just uh, where we, you know, kind of where we want to be long term. So it's uh, more and more of what we've done is to align ourselves with um, or to make ourselves a, a viable product for marketing agencies, like you said, that run different campaigns and multiple pages. And sometimes they're doing social contests. We have an airline who's doing a, a, a flight simulator type game you know, for, for iPhones. And so they're collecting emails for people you know, for that and mm-hmm. just trying to make it so that we're more of a general purpose marketing tool than a startup launch um, right. you know, type product. So. What you guys are doing is fascinating to me because with the Uber Deck now, the the kind of launch this web app and and what do you do next is hitting me because I'm not used to that sort of work pattern with the mobile stuff. You just kind mm-hmm. of release it and let it go and let it do whatever it's doing in the App Store. But with this, with Snappy and Kickoff Labs, you launch these products that are like significant size and and they're now a presence and they offer a service and they're out there. So now you have to like do stuff with it right <laughs> and what that's that, just the beginning what that stuff is is almost foreign to me because it's just not something that i that i did with with my company for for a long period of time or for however long i've been up it's really none of that has been marketing pushes following products it's all been product development what's that. your tips <laughs> What? <laughs> what's the what's the answer, Scott? What's the answer? I'm not asking him a question. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm just saying that. Uh, it, it, well, see, it's interesting that you guys have like a strategy that you're gonna position yourself in a certain way. And like, you know, the way I'm looking at it is like I built Overdeck, and now I want to add this feature, <laughs> and now I'm gonna add another feature. Oh, look, a sign up. Okay, cool. Now I want to add another feature, right. and like I, I almost don't have the mentality to. Uh, make it into what it's supposed to be yet. Like I almost have to like reset myself from the product after product after product mentality and get more into the building of something solid yeah, mentality and get to get the work properly. I mean, I think, it that, I think it was that. I think it was that We kept you know people were asking what was our marketing strategy, and we're like you know uh, what was the best way we chose it. We just you know we just try everything. Right. <laughs> you know, it's just a trial a trial and error marketing. That's that's actually what we were telling people. Um, and we would just try something and, and see if it worked. And if it worked, we would do more of it. Um, you know, I think something too many people get too caught up, caught up on early on is, you know, how do I, how can I do something at scales? And I was like, who cares if it scales, right? Our, our first, you know, semi big marketing win was we looked for people who were complaining about, um, competitive products or related products on Twitter. And we wrote to all those people. We just literally wrote to every single person who said, you know, I'm tired of waiting for this or the support stinks here or I'm tired of waiting in line or whatever it is. And we never spanned them or automated them. We always looked up like their, their bio or their website or their history and tried to write them back something interesting. But it wasn't. It was something that was completely unscalable. Um, but we just kind of went and said, let's, let's try to find where our customers are, right? One of the mistakes we made is early on is we wrote lots of blog posts. And that's just assuming people were, were looking for us and nobody was looking for us. Um, the thing that worked much better for us is we just we went out to where our customers were. So whether they're on Twitter or they're writing their own blog posts, um, Josh used to spend a ton of time on Quora, which I can never convince myself to use. Yeah, um, I just I just 
don't understand it. I, I don't know. I didn't, they don't let you see anything. I'm just completely turned off by that. You know, here's the first answer and log in with whatever your Facebook right. is. Yeah. That, that, just that part alone just completely takes away any value or potential value I could have gotten yeah. from that site. Yeah, but I don't know. But we were able to, to – I mean from just answering questions on Quora at one point, we were able to track back something like thirty or $40,000 in revenue. Um, just from, you know, investing, you know, cause it's one of those things, I guess, you know, the terminology was kind of like the long tail, you know, kind of marketing aspect of it. So you answer a question today, you probably get nothing from it, but you get a link tomorrow, two links on Thursday, you know, and yeah. then the, the, you know, as long as it's a, an interesting question, um, people find it, you know, over and over and over again. Um, and the same thing with like blog posts, you know, instead of writing our own blog posts, we went out and just commented on, blog posts that were relevant to, you know, to our business and our industry. And again, not in a spammy way, but, you know, if somebody was writing a blog post or asking a question, we would try to answer it. Um, and then you know, when you're doing it, there's an opportunity, you know, to say, yeah, this is why I can answer it because I'm building this related product or, you know, I've already answered it here, done it here, or, you know, or, you know, or whatnot. Um, and again, it's not a very scalable thing to do, but it's something that just, you kind of make that investment and it just, pays for itself a little bit, you know, each month, you know, every week, each month, um, each quarter, you know, a little bit more. So I could actually confirm that, that that works as a strategy because I, that was one of the things I experimented with, with, um, some of the mobile stuff, except that with the mobile stuff, the end result is again, it doesn't extend to the mobile stuff because of the pricing. So even though when I used to go through the BlackBerry forums, for example, (laughs) questions for people, and they would follow up and say, "Oh, I bought your product because you answered the question or something like that." And I was able to track back to the fact that you know th- that answer got them to buy my product. In the end, it was still like two dollars. It was like <laughs> even the recurring two dollars, just two dollars. But that's why and you got to get out of that scale. mindset because with Uber, that's not the case at all. You know, that's going to be very different because you're going to get somebody who pays you a hundred dollars a month forever. Yeah. So, so, you know, so if you want to explore that, I got to talk about pricing for Uber Deck for a while. All right, I don't know, sure. if Scott. If, I don't know, if Scott. Scott, do you mind? No, no, no. Go for it. So Uber Deck is in beta. I don't know. I, last time this we recorded, it wasn't in beta yet, right? Right. I was, I was still chasing my own tail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Uber Deck is in beta. It went out on the third of July, and then I spent the fourth of July cursing every goddamn neighbor I have because of the fireworks. <laughs> Anybody with dogs. It. Anybody with dogs just wants to leave the country on the Fourth of July. It's just impossible to leave. Got to toughen up those dogs. Come on, man. They jump in the bathtub, and it just—it's just a nightmare at night. <laughs> you got to go um, on vacation. You got to go overseas for overseas. it. <laughs> <laughs> and then on the fifth, I—I um, did a bunch of bug fixes because in the web app deployment, all the bug fixes just have to do with sim links and chmodding yeah. and change grouping and, and just everything on the server side. Uh, but I was actually surprised, uh, pleasantly surprised that it didn't have that, you know, many issues. All the issues just seem to be change of environment from, you know, staging to production. Beta. Right. Um, well, that's good. So I got a couple of people in there that asked and uh, they're trying it out. But it kind of sucked releasing stuff on the 3rd of July because it's a long weekend and nobody, everybody's on vacation. This vacation is like a foreign concept to me because I haven't taken one in a decade. <laughs> like, what do you mean you're not working? Well, I'm on vacation. All of your guys uh, are on vacation somewhere. Yeah. Eric is on vacation. Yeah. Um, so nobody's really used it except to, just to try it out. Uh, but there hasn't been any bugs. But So the only thing is left – oh, and I spent Saturday writing the uh, uh, 
because I got to do everything myself. Idiot. I spent the Saturday writing the terms of service and the privacy agreement. That's good, uh, all that. It's not. Utility you know, stuff. <laughs> because three years ago, I spent $30 on Amazon on a book that says contracts for web applications. <laughs> and I, I needed to get some value out of that purchase. So there I spent go. Friday night reading that book and Saturday writing the contracts. <laughs> so <laughs> clearly uh, something that would have been better done externally. Sure. Um, uh, you can always update that. Yeah. So the thing that was left now is uh, pricing and you know billing implementation so uh so see, so the current- you don't even have to we, we should talk about it but you don't even have to worry about that yet you just got to focus on getting more people using the beta yeah that's yeah sure. okay that's fine no but listen right. let's we'll skip so over the, that there's right. there's a thing about pricing here there's a, <laughs> there's right. a caveat about pricing okay so the 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 current two <laughs> leaders in the pricing strategy is one you either price per month Based on some cap number of, I don't know, Scott, you're not familiar with Uber Deck. I don't know if you read up on that or not. Uh, so, so basically, Uber Deck lets you send marketing campaigns directly to your mobile apps. Yep. So, so or in either text campaigns or just big image campaigns. Right? So, so the two leader pricing strategies is either we either charge per month some number based on uh, number. A capped number of deliveries, right? So some number of recipients at this level charges this much and some number of recipients at a higher level charge this much or per campaign. So uh, you, you're sending this campaign to a limited number of people to a limited number of apps. So you want to cap it at 10,000 recipients. So you would pay this number for just this campaign. And if, if the campaign is coming close to its wall, then we send you an email if you want to renew it or extend it or something like that. So it's either per campaign or per month, but it's still priced on the axis of number of deliveries, right? So you want to ideally price this thing like any product on the number, the, the amount of value it gives, right? Not the features or whatever, but just the value. The problem is <clears throat> that in the mobile space, you clearly have, I mean, ideally you want the product the Uber Deck as a product to be agnostic from uh, what kind of apps it's targeting. So right now it's going to be targeting either iOS apps or Android apps, but maybe in the future it'll be targeting desktop apps or web apps or whatever. It's just a, the SDK implementation. Um, that's the only difference. So ideally you want to have Uber Deck as a product to be agnostic from what client-side implementation people are putting this thing on. But the reality is right now it's only iOS and Android. And the reality of the mobile marketplace is that you have a crap load of free apps and a crap load of paid apps. And just looking at my own apps in the marketplace, even on iOS, for example, I have Nightstand and Pregnancy Food Guide. One is paid and one is free. The, the free one has two orders of magnitude more downloads than the paid one. So if you have a, a thousand, then uh, paid purchases, you're going to have a hundred thousand right. for the equivalent <laughs> amount of time, um, free purchases. The value at any given level that Uber Deck will give you varies differently depending on whether you have a free app or a paid app. So if I say you're going to have 10,000 recipients at $20, those 10,000 recipients are very much worth $20 to your paid app, but they're worth nothing if you have a free app and you're pulling down 100,000 downloads a week. Yeah. So, And I cannot go into 
th- this thing with the mentality of you have to prove to me whether you're a free app or a paid app, or you have nah. to confirm whether you're a free app or a paid app. They're 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 capable. The customers are capable of changing their app status at any time. They could be running promotions that could be changing the download numbers at any time. So the to me in my mindset is that Uberdeck has to be agnostic. If not between what platform they're implementing it on, but at least between whether the app is a free app or a paid app. It cannot know about that. So the pricing has to be done fairly at some level. And if the pricing continues to be on the axis of how many recipients there are, I can't figure out a way of giving the same value um, to the free app users and the paid app users because there's, there's two orders of magnitude difference between the two. The middle ground will not I mean, work between them. For me, I think I'm not sure I like it based on the recipients in general, but if just assuming you stick with that, I mean, I think that's pretty easy to separate because if you just leave the max recipients relatively low at each tier, I mean, that's going to automatically take care of it for you, right? Like, I mean, if there's a 10,000 tier and a 50,000 tier and a 100,000 tier, like, Nobody with a free app. Well, that's not really true. If somebody with a, a million free apps out there, you know, really wants to use it and thinks they can drive that level of value from it, then they're going to pay you. But if they don't, then you're not going to, you know, they're just not going to be customers. But well, that no, might not. be okay. I mean, if if you have a paid app and it's and it's it's a dollar, and you're buying an Uber Day campaign for a thousand cap, and you're paying me twenty bucks. Uh, obviously, that twenty bucks will be worth the thousand dollars you made off of it, right. right? But if somebody comes in with a free app where they're making the same thousand dollars, that's two hundred thousand downloads. But Those I say 10, forget, forget caps, about that guy. I can't because <laughs> because the the trend is much more towards the people that are pulling down. Um, I mean, even Gavin, Gavin on Retro Dreamer, they have games uh, th- that are pulling down five million downloads off of Google right. Play. And that's five million a month because Google Play is trending thirty day. But, uh, but see, that's numbers. where that's where back to my kind of original point was like, why have the caps at all? So, what access are you going to use for pricing? Just do by the campaign. By the campaign. Yeah, like I mean, if you charge enough, if you charge sufficiently, it's not going to matter. Like if if somebody hits your server a hundred thousand times, it's not really going to cost you that much more money. Do you know what I mean like as long as you're charging them, you know, over twenty dollars a campaign or something like that? Like you're gonna make that money, you know, for the guy who hits you for a million, he's gonna be more than offset by all the people who hit you for a hundred thousand. Do you know what I mean? See, because I already took off SaaS pricing here, taking off uh, the potential of renewing because you're approaching the limit of your cap, and now you're essentially making a flat price campaign. That's taking like a lot of the benefit of having sure. a web app out of the, the yeah. deal, right? The only thing you're the only thing you're retaining is the ability to update the code on your own terms. But you still have a lot of other knobs to dial. I mean, like if you had flat rates, like let's say you had flat rates, like the base plan's twenty bucks a month, and the next plan, like, and maybe that's only text campaigns, and then for fifty bucks a month, you can do text and image, and still only mobile. And then there's enterprise, which is 150 or whatever, 250, which is enterprise mobile and any, you know, in the future, uh, you know, desktop, web app, whatever. You know what I mean? Like there might be other things you can charge on rather than the, 
you know, number of recipients. Because the other problem with number of recipients is like nobody knows how many recipients they have, which is makes the whole thing kind of tricky and weird. You know, that's another thing too that, that from a consumer perspective is kind of weird when you don't know how many people you're even sending to because you don't have any stats on how many people use your app because it's all you know hidden away and you don't have access to that information. People are always going to think they have more as well, right? So every right. everyone who's starting or launching an app is always is of the mindset, oh, I'm going to get a million people to download this thing. Right. right? And it, and I think if you if you price it and and you say, hey, for you know for for a million people, it's it's going to be this this huge number. The reality is most people won't you know won't get there, and you you could you know scare some of those people off. Right. Um, but for me, I, <laughs> so my my two cents is uh, you know don't even worry about it today. Uh, so so don't don't not worry about like you know pricing. When we launched Kickoff Labs, we didn't have any free beta. We launched and said you should pay us money. Um, we built something that's useful, and, and you should pay us. We charged way less than we do today. Um, we've raised prices, but you can always change prices. So I would say go with the simplest thing you can do today and see what people are willing to take their credit card out and, uh, and pay you some money. And then you can always raise it in the future. You always change it. Um, when we raise prices, we never raise prices on existing customers. And so you run like a tiny bit of risk there. But you know, if you take that mentality, you won't alienate you know, anybody. We have customers now who are happy they're paying 25% of what their, you know, our, our current rates are. Um, but they signed up for us when we, we sucked really bad. Um, they gave us a shot. And so they deserve, you know, they deserve the, the big discount, but you can always change it. Hey, you always change it. You know, it's not. Yeah. I'm not really asking about the numbers themselves. I know I could adjust the, the values, but yeah. because I'm literally at the point where the next thing that's left to implement in this beta yeah. is billing through yeah. an API. There's actual like, code considerations involved in the right. strategy of how I'm going to price sure. this thing. Yeah. Right? Well, that's the other thing too. Is like, I mean, I do feel like there's some, um, if you go with a simpler route of like, it's some monthly fees and you base it maybe on the features of what is capable instead of on the number of deliveries. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could probably, you could obviously always change the deliveries later, but also, um, you know, you'll get a chance to see, because part of it, I think is that there is some cost consideration on your side. Like, you know, there's more servers, there's more bandwidth. Like, is it in reality, does serving a million people, you know, really cost you almost nothing? Or is it actually a huge cost? Like, if it's a huge cost, then yeah, maybe like you obviously have to charge by resources because, you know, it, you, you need a whole nother server to serve this one account because they have a million people a month or whatever. Or, you know, is it this one server serves 50 million a month? And so, it's totally irrelevant if somebody signs up with a million, it's costing you a few bucks and, you know, at least then you don't have the cost side, which I mean, obviously ideally you're just doing it on value, but I think there's also the kind of practical aspect of you don't want to be undercharging your costs and things like that. So, which most SaaS apps don't really have that kind of consideration. Like with Snappy, we have that consideration too, because we have, you know, every inbound email costs us money, every outbound email costs us money. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so there's all fees associated with all that. And, you know, people have a lot of email that they send in or they forward and half of it's spam. And so there's a lot of, you know, I, I thought about a lot about that too, about doing like, cause nobody's, I don't, I've ever seen has ever done a help desk based on like, you know, ticket quantity. Like you'd go to AWS and say, Hey, you know, we want this much, you know, this is what the cost is per gigabyte. You know, maybe we could have done this is what the cost is per thousand tickets or whatever. Mm-hmm. But 
in the end, I just thought it was going to be too complicated and and mostly about making people nervous. Like they don't know how many tickets they yeah. get each month. So now they're like, well, at least with Zendesk, I know I just pay my fifty bucks a month. Correct. I don't have to worry about it. You know, so yeah, that's why I think people. I think it scares people to have like an unknown cost at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other part, I don't know if you, you ever read the book, don't make me think. Yeah. Yeah. So the only thing I remember from that book is he was talking about <laughs> user testing. And he said, if you can't afford to do like, you know, end level, end level user testing, just do what Amazon does. Right. Cause they spend millions of dollars on, on usability testing, not user testing. So if you can't afford to do usability testing, do what Amazon does and just assume they spend millions of dollars doing it, right? And so that's why every website um, up to, you know, last 10 years had tabs at the top, right? Because Amazon had tabs. Um, I would look at, you know, from a billing perspective, look at how MailChimp and Constant Contact and AWeber um, do their billing, um, which I think is a sim- that, that flat fee rate, right? I think MailChimp lets you send X number of emails. It doesn't matter how many people. Like once you reach a certain threshold, Right, you pay this amount, and when you reach this next threshold, you pay it out. So, if, you, if your list has five thousand people on it, you pay them twenty dollars a month. If your list has ten thousand, you pay you know a hundred dollars, you know whatever the, the numbers are. Right, and it just yeah, makes but it you... simple for people, and just assume that they've done the testing there. Unless, like like Ian said, there's you know there's a, a high fee for you know you know for sending well, your messages out. My and that's the tricky part with mobile is because the people don't really know. They don't how, know how many they're sending it out to. Yeah. See, yeah. like with, with your mailing list, you know my mailing list is four thousand people or whatever. Like I'm in a certain tier, but like yeah. some app stores <laughs> don't even tell you how many people downloaded. You definitely know how many idea how many active people are using it. So it gets it's a little bit tricky. But I mean, like, a lot of those guys. See, I think in this regard, those guys, a lot of them have moved to whether the like, campaign monitor. Like they were always only pay by the email. So you paid a penny email whenever you sent email and that was it. And that's what they did. And then recently they moved to, you can still do that, but they kind of push people more towards the like flat monthly rates um, based on list quantity. But you know, where it's more just, yeah, you pay us X a month and it's unlimited emails and it's, you know, just, you know, for the size list you have and things like that. See, because, because I always liked that, bit about campaign monitor because I might send right. one campaign a year or something, right? right? It doesn't make right. sense to me to have a monthly thing. So <laughs> I always liked that about campaign monitor. And I always thought that they're moving over to a monthly billing SaaS thing is more of a consideration for the business rather than a consideration with the customer. Right. But I had Ooh. some feedback for UberDeck and the one piece of feedback I got on pricing was that I don't know if he's taking suggestions for pricing, but my first suggestion for pricing was that I'd like you to price this thing as a monthly thing, let's say 20 bucks, because I just want to leave a campaign on Running. telling all my current and future downloaders of my app that I have this other app. Yeah, that's and good. And I point. just don't want to buy. But that's not like, that's completely not how I saw Uber there. <laughs> it doesn't right? matter. <laughs> I know, but it's, I mean, it's really not statistically significant. One you know, person. the other thing, though, you could think about is, and this is something like that's a big difference. You know, one of the things I've always hated about HelpSpot is that, and you know, if you go with something where it's like per campaign, the downside of that is you're always begging people to come back because, like, like with HelpSpot, like they come by their licenses, and there's always this barrier. Like, so they buy ten licenses at HelpSpot, they hire a new person. You know, are they gonna? Maybe this person's job isn't solely help desk, so 
are they going to have the new person come on to the help desk? Because it would be convenient sometimes, but they don't really need them there always. So now they have to come back to me. They have to make a purchase, bring out their credit card. Like it's a whole big thing uh, because they want to add this one person. Like every time you have that resistance of like purchasing. Mm-hmm. Whereas like when you have the more monthly flat rate, it's a little bit easier or it's just where you're adding a user in the system and you're just billing them more, but they're not really having to come back to do anything special. You know, it just makes that whole process much smoother. So, I mean, the other thing I was thinking, maybe you still do the flat rate, like have tiers based on features or something. So that's your kind of flat rate thing, unlimited camp, unlimited sends. But you do also offer like the one-off. So if you just want to pay 10 bucks for a one-off campaign of a certain size or, you know, 50 bucks of a one-off campaign of a certain size, you know, you could offer that a la carte. But the primary focus is these monthly plans. But, you know, if you like to just do, you know, you're only going to use it once a year to send out when you do a new big product release, then, you, you know, we could charge you a little bit extra to let you do that one time or whatever, you know. Right. So you have billing for code for both ways in that case. Yeah, I'll double the code. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Uh, what else so, we got? You're all cleared up there? You're, you're set? Me? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. You didn't answer anything. Oh, we don't. Who knows? <laughs> well, but that's how it, that's the way it goes. It's it's just a matter of discussion, and nothing well, gets resolved. I, I mean, I think the good thing about the SaaS stuff is it's so much easier to test it. Like, I mean, Scott was saying, it sounds like they've changed a bunch of times, and you know, it's so much easier to, other than the kind of inconvenience of swapping out the code here and there. But you know, it's pretty easy essentially to just swap people out and you know put offered new plans or try different prices or whatever i mean you know one of the things i definitely here's a a pricing thing i actually want to talk about so this is kind of related is that i kind of realized that we've been charging way too little for help spot recently and i mean we've we've never up up the cost of support ever in eight years and pricing's gone up a little bit but not that much and i was talking to this customer who's a really huge customer that everybody in the world would know. And they're like, yeah, you know, so they, they use HelpSpot and they paid us probably, I don't know, like three or $4,000 or something like that. And I'm talking, they don't, it's not a really big installation. And they, they host it with our hosting partner. So mm-hmm. I'm talking to them about what they're doing there. And what they did with the hosting partner is they just – Bought like a huge server because they didn't want to think about it. So they're paying the hosting. Partner. They're paying them more than they're paying. You they're paying the them software. like almost a thousand dollars a month, and they're way over buying. It's like almost a thousand dollars. So they're paying them twelve thousand dollars a year, and it's way more resource than they need. And because they're just like, we don't want to worry about. It. We just bought the big one and whatever. And so like, I'm like, boy, like, why am I charging so little? <laughs> like the main product, you're not even paying anything for essentially, and you're you know, so it's like. Especially when you deal with like companies, I think it's you know you gotta try to keep that in mind that it's not their money and they get a lot of value out of it. And anything we're charging is not really that much money to them. So if you, as long as you kind of cover the little guy, um, which I think is always important from like a kind of marketing perspective that you don't like blow them out of the water unless you're really you know only selling enterprise. But uh, you know, but you could definitely charge a lot more at the upper tiers than it feels right to charge. I think because. It's uh, there's a lot less resistance there. Yeah, I have no fear of raising prices at all. Yeah. My wife is the complete opposite. But yeah, like, see, I, I'm scared always of raising prices. I don't know. 
I mean, we charged $50 for a spam filter for a mobile app for years. Mm. Right. <laughs> and now, when I want to raise nightstand from like a dollar to $2, my wife like yells at me and I never <laughs> do it. But I, I have no problems. I'll triple my prices <laughs> just randomly <laughs> with no evidence or, or any indication that it will help. I just triple it just for the hell of it. There you go. Well, that's good. No, Try it I mean, out. No, I mean, you know, there's this there's this notion that there's this fear of raising prices and people charge too low, and that's true. But uh, I I think it's like a personality thing. I don't think it's a universal software founder type of a thing. Yeah, uh, that's probably true. It's definitely not universal. That's for sure. Uh, have you seen this Agant thing? I sent you the link. Yeah. Scott, have you seen the Gantt.com? You're probably not in that. No. Uh, that so Gantt was is a mobile company, which which you know has a bunch of stuff for iOS. I guess I don't know about other platforms. And so, like a bunch of employees and a bunch of contractors, and you know probably bigger than Userscape. Yeah, and, I think it was um, like six or seven full time people, maybe or yeah, maybe so, more so, ten. You know, like a, a company by 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 all um, by all clues a company that's on its way up and then the guy the founder just posts um replaces replaces the website the the home page with like this blog post just like, it's one thing and it just says i fired everybody <laughs> and i'm going back to being a one person company he didn't he didn't put it as cruelly as i did sure. but it's basically the the mobile marketplace is unsustainable and i don't I, i'm projecting that i won't be able to hold on to it with this size company so i'm going back to being just myself like i've never seen that aside from the fact when it was like forced on us and i had to do it a few right. years ago i never thought anybody would actually um voluntarily project the fact that i i, I would be delusional for a long time and i would say oh it'll be fine it'll clear right. up and this guy's just projected and said you know can't do it. Not going to be able to. Maybe I'll do it for another year, but then downhill. So I might as well just cut it short now and I guess save the funds to be able to, to restart on my own. Well, I think I also, I mean, I read it last week, but, you know, I also kind of took from it um, definitely something I've thought about, which is that, like, you know, when you're, when it's just you by yourself, you know, there's a whole, it's a very different aspect, especially when you're bootstrapped than, like, you know, then when even the Userscape where we have like five people, it's like there's just a very different vibe. Like once you have a few employees, you know, it's like there's all this that you're dealing with states on things. You're dealing with accountants and lawyers and all there's like a ton of like just administrative overhead. And like, I mean, you know that, Andre, from back when you had your employees, like, you know, it's just a lot to do. And I think the way I took it a little bit was like he kind of had enough of that aspect too, you know, like. <laughs> Like, he, like, A, it was like this business, mobile business is really tough and like it's possible that we won't even be around anyway in a year or two. And then also I'm just kind of like, you know, this is like a, when it's just me, I can just do what I want and I can build the projects I want and I don't have to worry about making enough money to pay everybody else. And so that's it. You know, I, I know I can make myself my hundred grand a year and and that's that's fine and I don't have to worry about, you know, kind of all these other people. So you know, I, I definitely see something to that. I don't know, do, Scott. Do you guys have employees? Or it's just the two of you still, right? Yeah, it's just the two of us. We recently brought someone on to help uh, to help us support, just a, you know, a yep. couple hours a week. But yeah, it's just the two of us. Now, are you are you are you staying small after starting small, or do you have big aspirations? 
my aspirations go as far as you know, like, like a month it, from now. <laughs> no, no. So I mean, like, it's like if you told me I could, you know, double the size of the company, but to do that, it would require twice the amount of work. I wouldn't want to do it. Um, I'm, I'm happy with you know the amount of time and energy I have to put into the business now, and then do all the other things in my life. Um, I have to do. I, I mean, I see us adding, you know, a, a couple people, hopefully, just to you know, kind of you know, further grow it. Um, but I don't think I have that aspirations of this being, you know, a thousand person company or a 500 person company or, you know, anything like that. Um, but it really comes down to just, you know, how does it affect, you know, the rest of my life, you know, you know, to keep growing it and that kind of stuff. See, I'm I'm of the same mindset and there's no 18 year old startup founder that will be able to relate to this. Like after, after eight years of just, just (laughs) grueling every day, you just want something to bring in revenue and give you time. You want to trade that you want to get the time in return for the revenue. Yeah. Whereas if you're in your early twenties or late teens or something, you're starting a business. Do you want the complete opposite of that? But also like too, there's the aspect like even adding people like doesn't necessarily get you time, you know, especially for a while. Like we're not really, we're to the point where it's somewhat, gotten me a little bit of time but at the same time hey, you were able to go time, down so. and give a talk at bacon biz where because you had guys who were able to release code for you that's true during that time back back in, back in that day you would have been in the office stuck for days releasing that code well part of the problem is i've also i'm not very smart and we did this second product so like there's still two products which is twice the work so like if i if we had just done one product then having the number of people we have now definitely would have bought me more time, but it actually hasn't bought me more time. But eventually, <laughs> hopefully it will in the future. But um, yeah, that that's tricky. Well, you know what's interesting too? Now, this is somewhat off, off topic, but what Scott just talked about, I'm, I'm always curious about this because like finding somebody to work part-time. Like, I know Andre was looking for somebody to work part-time. I don't think you've had any luck yet, right, Andre? Like, I don't know. Like, how did how did that work out for you, Scott? I mean, so it sounds like you just got this person fairly recently. Like, how did you yeah. find them? Like, because I don't know. I've never had. I, I never really tried to find somebody part time because it just felt like I couldn't. I don't know. I just felt like I don't know if I could really find somebody to work part time. Then Andre's not doing it. <laughs> the has prob- no luck the with problem it, so. is not part time. The problem is that nobody has solved the problem of what every single startup at a certain level around our level has, which is you have enough work for 15 to 17% of a person. So you have enough work for 15 to 17% of a full-time support person, 15 to 17% of a full-time system administrator, 20% of a designer, and you can't split a person in half. You can't hire five different people. And there's no job board out there or something that'll say, I don't know, I don't even know how to put this in technological terms to solve it. Maybe it's not solvable, but basically it's that. I have a need for X, but I need it to be done for a day and a half spread across a week. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? Well, so, I think it also depends on the position. Like you're really looking for somebody who knows a lot of different things, which I think also makes it much more yeah. kind of complicated. Yeah. We went to, I mean, the somewhere, I think we, we, we found them via Odesk. I know Josh spent a lot of time researching and, and looking, you know, all over the place. Um, we've put a couple of feelers out. For, I mean, development-wise, we've put a couple of feelers out there where we were just looking for somebody who wanted to learn software. We're like, you know what? I'll teach you how to, you know, how to build a Rails app um, right. and, and HTML and CSS, the whole stuff. You know, if you want to, you know, 
kind of get your hands dirty and, and put the effort. And we thought that would be a, a good way of going about it. Um, and it was but funny. How much, was value, somebody, how much was, value would you expect to get out of such a person? I wouldn't expect much, but I wouldn't expect to pay too much, you know, for that. Right. I mean, I, there was one of the, I think on a, was it uh, Rob Wallen's podcast. There was somebody on there who had mentioned, right. He was working at, I don't know, Kmart or Target or something. I was asking mm-hmm. for how you can get out of that and get out of, you know, software development. And so I reached out to Rob and said, if this guy's, you know, really, I was assuming he's a guy is really interested in it. Have him contact me. And we'll see if we can't, you know, work something out. And he never contacted me. So I guess he really wasn't that interested um, in, in figuring out. <laughs> I thought we'd have a pretty interesting, um, you, know, you know, way of going about it. And we certainly don't have a ton of money to throw at it, but I was confident we could compete with Target or Kmart or Walmart, right. <laughs> you know, whatever it was. Um, but for us, I mean, we, we found someone to help us with the support. Um, you know, and, and so he works like 10 or 20 hours a week, something like that. And we made it really flexible for him. Um, however he wants to do those hours. Odesk has a pretty cool thing built into it. And so you can actually see what the person's doing. And so we, we know, you know, if he works, you know, five hours, 10 hours, 20, you know, you know, whatever right. it is. Um, and just start it with having him answer as many questions as he can. And, uh, and, and so a lot of times he'll just say, I don't know the answer and we'll show him the answer or record a video or, or something like that. And so hopefully it's only been on for like two weeks, three weeks now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but push came to shove on it because I went on vacation for two weeks. And <laughs> so Josh was doing everything himself. And so I came back to, uh, hey, we have a part-time employee. <laughs> <laughs> and, but but it's, it's worked out good. And sometimes you, you really do need that, you know, just kind of feet under the fire, you know, you know kind yeah. of thing. But getting back to what Andre said, I mean, for me, a big thing too is I couldn't imagine, you know, starting a company. So I'm, I'm of the believer that of of a two-person company, of at least two people, starting with, with a co-founder because the things that I've wanted to do as far as still taking family vacations, um, drove my daughter to school every day for the last, you know, three years, which thankfully, you know, she'll be in a bus next year. Um, but, you know, just to be able to do the things I want to do, it, it would have been hard to go on vacation, um, and have it be just, I mean, it would have been possible. Um, but I would have had to do, you know, a lot more work versus now, you know, there were a couple of things that just got filtered to me that were you know, things where I just had more knowledge of. And so, you know, I had to tweak or, or fix or whatnot, um, but to be able to go away. And I, I'm always, it, 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 I'm always amazed at you know, the number of people who kind of go at it, you know, by themselves. Um, not amazed that they would try it. Just, you know, it's, it just seems like it's, it's more that it's, not more harder, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's harder for sure. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I think, I think that's also double harder, right? So if it's, right. if it's a hundred percent effort to do it with two people, you know, I, it, it feels like it'd be 200% or 250% to do it, you know, by yourself because you just, it, you just never can get yourself in a groove for, for getting work done. And then it's 24 seven, especially with the SAS app, um, yeah. you know, when, when something breaks or whatever, yeah. um, Difference. So I'm more technical than Josh is. Josh does a bit more marketing, um, but I took like a three day cruise and was pretty confident that if anything went wrong, right? You know, Josh was at least there to restart things. <laughs> you know, to, right. to try to stand All right, restart the servers, contact the hosting support. Um, you know, try you know try these things before you know tracking me down in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean or you know or something like that. You know, whereas right. if it was just me and the and a site went down and I'm in the middle of the Atlantic, I wouldn't even get the, you know, the notification it was down. I'd have to probably proactively go look and, you know, and see if the site's still there. So, 
Right. I've, I've actually, I actually think that's probably also a factor of age because back when I was starting out, I would have argued with you for days about the fact that I'm perfectly fine being a single founder. Yeah. But now I'm completely, I did a com- complete 180 on that. I would really like to have started with someone else. And, you know, employees, I, I don't know if Ian has this experience or not, but I certainly did. The explo- employees don't provide uh, a sufficient substitute for that. Um, you might have somebody to talk to on on, on, you know, on that level, but it's not really like the person needs to have his or her skin in the game as much as you yeah. do. Well, yeah, I think the problem really isn't so much the tricky part is that like after you run a company for years by yourself, like you know everything, and like so you can imagine any scenario where something's gonna break. In a way that, like, even when you have employees, like, they don't know everything about everything, like, the way you do. So that's where it gets tricky um, because, you know, it's just not practical. It's not even so much about, like, whether they're capable or anything like that. It's that, you know, they have a job to do, and so they're doing that job that you hired them to do. And so while they're doing the development work, you know, they're not also learning about, Kentucky tax code or, you know, or, you know, whatever random stuff that might go wrong. Like, and so like, there's all these different scenarios that like, until you reach a certain size where you're able to like specialize completely and okay, now we have an office person, you know, an office manager and we have developers and we have customer service people and, you know, you, you break it all out so that, okay, now this is totally, I can be completely isolated from, uh, the business in the sense that there's at least one other person that knows in at least this area, everything I know. Um, but like until you get to that spot, there's always going to be these like gaps in coverage just because it's impossible for somebody to know all the things, you know, over, you know, eight years of running this company or whatever. So that's, that's where I think it gets, you know, the tricky aspect. To where it. I miss, <laughs> where I miss a co-founder is more along the lines of just, uh, Saying, oh, do you think this might be a good idea to do with the company next? Because you don't know, right? You're yeah. more reactive. You're, you're kind of, you kind of just jumping. At, you're like Scott says, you have to like try everything, right? But yeah. before you try that thing on a tactical level, you want to say, is this a good idea? And you want to have somebody tell you, yes or no, you're an idiot for even thinking. Right. <laughs> I think you can't just, do that with employees. It's just yeah. not this. They don't have as much. I mean, they don't. They don't wake up in the morning and take a shower and go back, back down to breakfast and all of. All of that time, the, the CPU cycles right. through the business, right? <laughs> right? It doesn't work that way with employees. So that's what I miss the most, just being able to – for somebody to tell me, you're a little bit off your game today for even thinking of something like that. <laughs> and so I think for us, the thing that's been most beneficial is just having t- someone tell you just ship it, right? It's better right. It's better than what it was yesterday. And I know we, we've both been in the thing where we're working on something and it's like, I just have to get through these last three things. And the other person looks at it and goes, that is 10 times better than what's live right now. Just right. push the button and ship it. Just right. you know, ship it and if somebody complains – you can work on it more. You can fix it more the next day. It's just easy to get yourself in that little rabbit hole. And I can see myself, if it was just me, I might not have shipped the thing at all yet, right? Because I'd be working on making it perfect. Um, whereas you have that other person going, nope, it's good enough. You know, that part, you know, part works for me. So, Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely want a founder. I think if I did it again, I don't know. Yeah. So hard to think about doing it again. <laughs> doing it again doesn't sound necessarily appealing either. So I don't know. you would need a very long break in between. Or at least yeah, I, know I think I would. so. I think I definitely need a break. 
if uh, uh, if I were to somehow be be away from Userscape. Yeah, I think jumping back in at the very, I mean, launching Snappy is kind of like it, but it's not quite the same as really starting from nothing. Right. We're over an hour, but I just wanted to to just bring this article up because it's going to be stale if we bring it up next. I guess it might not be, but still, I just want, it's a quick one. Um, Forbes had this thing on the rise of the million dollar one person business where they just did a a dump of um, the census, the recent census. Mm -hmm. And uh, they picked out the the ones that have said that they're sort of business owners and the ones that are one person business owners as reported by them. So I guess it's a little bit skewed, but, but still, so 1.6 million people rang up sales between a hundred thousand and 250,000. So that's like what Ian, I guess is considering acceptable figures for one person business without any ambition. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, I agree with it. That's, that's New York. A hundred thousand to me is New York city acceptable rate of living. You, You can survive. Yes. Uh, so, uh, below that, uh, 484,000 are between 250 grand to 500 grand. And then it goes downhill from there. And then, so, uh, 26,000 had sales, uh, from a million up and 368 people had sales of 5 million up. Seems a little low, um, Considering how many business owners there were, considering what five million is, and the fact that there's like billionaires on, on the planet, um, but there's also uh, a little bit of digging into what categories they're in as far as businesses, um, and almost all the people that are ranking in five million or more a year, they're all in finance and insurance. Yeah, which Nobody's makes sense. In software. <laughs> well, because uh, be but, one but, person, but also yeah. you got, you're reporting yourself as the sole business owner and a one-person company. You're not running a finance or insurance company. You got to have people. I guess you might have a thousand contractors and still report yourself as the one employee in the company. I was kind of wondering you. too, though, if it's more just that, like you know, maybe I'm like a day trader, and so I put my thing as finance or something. You know what I mean? Like yeah. where you could probably rack up that much money, you know, if you had a bankroll and you're, you know, kind of doing stuff in the stock market, like you know, maybe that kind of thing or some kind of insurance speculation. Like I definitely don't think these are you know, stockbrokers who are just advising people or, you know, some kind of little insurance company. These definitely have to be some kind of weird <laughs> niche, you know, barely in this definition of finance and insurance, but just technically is kind of thing. Automated money laundering. Right. <laughs> Web-based like SaaS app. But this is uh, kind of, it was kind of interesting just to see how far, you know, it's surprising a number of people do push it that far, you know, like to be one person and, I mean, one person, you know, and making a half, half a million dollars. Yeah. I mean, you have 209,000 people who made between half a million and one million. So, I mean, that's pretty, pretty impressive, actually. So, the next uh, category of 2.5 million to 5 million uh, revenue is mostly professional, scientific, and technical services, which I'm guessing is like consulting and lawyers and dentists and all that Yeah, stuff. maybe so. I can see that, like if you're some, yeah, doing talks and things like that. And then um, at the lowest range, so it goes down from there to uh, half a million to a million are real estate people and construction. And then a quarter million to half a million 
is, um, uh, again, real estate, rental and leasing. And uh, that's it. I mean, they don't seem to differentiate between the categories too much. I guess they packed a lot of stuff into the uh, scientific, technical, and the professional services. Yeah. I guess that's where we fit in. They probably don't really have the breakdown. You know what I mean? I don't think you probably really provided the a more specific breakdown. They'd have to like actually go start digging, which probably isn't going to happen. She actually says in the concluding paragraphs that the reporter that uh, she found that several of these teams are actually seven to ten people, but they only report one W two employee, and the rest are uh. contractors. So that's how you get a uh, insurance company with one person working in it because there's uh. eight hundred contractors and stuff. <laughs> I can see that in construction and stuff like that too. You know where you could have a lot of like just day labor or contractors, things of that nature. All right. Outsourcing. So I thought that was mildly entertaining. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Scott, you got anything coming up? Do you want to pitch? Be a pitch uh, man. No, I mean, we're just, we keep working on the, you know, keep working on kickoff labs and trying to make it better. You know, Are you new products? So. Yeah, new products? Are you sticking with Sticking any new variations? We started... Like a year or so ago, like on product number two. Um, You're just going down the list you made three years ago, two years ago? No, and we, we moved away. No, it's funny like how many of them were like mobile apps and we stayed away from it. <laughs> we just thought we couldn't control it enough. We just, yeah. we just didn't right. know how we were you know, going to get people to, you know, how we get people to sign up. We just felt like it was completely, I mean, I was honest, that was the number one reason um, we did a SaaS app versus a mobile app is that, we just couldn't. We just didn't feel like we were going to be in control enough. That yeah, we were at the mercy of the app stores and reviews and, and and that kind of stuff. We weren't even smart enough then to know that you know we want you know we want to sell you know ten things for a thousand dollars versus a thousand things for ten dollars. Right? right. I don't even think we understood it at that time. But uh, no, we had started a product a year a year or so ago called Sift Social, and we backed away from it. The idea was it was kind of like. Your your social like a social inbox. So you know, you can do search criteria, and we would show you all the tweets you know where people mention you know Uberdeck, and then rank them according to you know how important a person was that said it, you know, or some level of importance and stuff like that. But uh, mm. we ultimately backed away from it because there was still we still felt like there's a lot of opportunity for kickoff labs, and um, we hadn't reached any type of ceiling there yet, and it was still just the two of us. And as hard as it is to do one product with uh, two people, <laughs> doing two products with two people, it just wasn't enough time. Um, and yeah. it was a little bit too dependent on Twitter and access to their data. And uh, being a bootstrapped company, um, we just really couldn't afford to pay for um, adequate data. So yeah, to get, get wiped out when Twitter turns something off on you or whatever. Yeah, I just—it's one of those things where I just—I just wasn't. I was really, it's funny, I was really into it at first, and then I backed off, and, and Josh was still pretty into it, um, but the, you know, we still had plenty of opportunity um, with Kickoff Labs, and so um, we weren't struggling to get, um, you know, to, to, to grow it, it's, you know, it was, it's always slower than you want it to be, um, right. but we were able to keep doing that, and so we just decided to just focus, um, you know, focus in on that and see where it takes us, so. It's funny though, even though your your kind of optimal state is slow growth to afford you the time you need to spend with your family and whatnot, mm-hmm. uh, there's still that drive to kind of I'll load up a little bit more on my plate with another product. 
It's, well, it's, it just calls you, you know, especially when you have the technical skills yourself to do it. It's yep. like, oh, I could do it. Like, you know, we could do this. And it's like all the other stuff around it. Then you start to realize like, ooh, that's, that's a bear. It's not just, it's not just the code. It's, you know, everything okay. else. Oh, building is the easy part. Right, exactly. All the other stuff is the, you know, it's the harder part. So, so no, we had other desires. We wanted to, you know, we wanted something where we could charge you, you know, $500 a month you know, right, right. versus $50 a month. So, right. So the uh, one of one of the questions for you, Scott. So you know, we obviously have a lot of people listening to this who are either starting something or want to or whatever. So if you're doing a landing page, what's your couple top tips you like to give out for somebody yeah. doing a landing page? So the the number one and, and by far most important is you have to explain the benefit in terms of you know how it, you have to explain the benefit to the end user. Um, way too often someone will say, you know, the landing page would be, you know, the, you know, YouTube 2.0 or 3.0 sign up today or, right. you know, be the first to know or whatever. And it's like, well, who cares? Um, Built is Ruby and Rails. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, or something. And you really have to explain, you know, how, how it benefits, you know, the end user. Um, I forget where I heard it from, but the person said, you just have to envision, you just have to remember that people are inherently selfish. Like, they don't mean right. to be. But everyone's always, you know, how does it help me? You know, what what's in it for me? Um, and we even struggle. It's kind of funny. We we've done a bunch of copywriting consulting things where we help people, you know, kind of in that sense. But yet mm-hmm. we struggle to explain our own product. Right. Um, and and part of it is just because you get so close to it too. It, it's hard to explain it without uh, listing your features and and knowing you know the, you know the benefit of each and every feature. Right. Um, but that that would be by far you know my my number one tip is that you have to figure out. You have to give users an incentive because you not only want them to sign up, you want them to tell other people about it. Generally, you do. Um, you want them to tell other people about it. And the, and the beauty of that is, right, if you get somebody to sign up, right, so if I get Ian to sign up for, for some new service, chances are, you know, three or four or five of the people, you know, at least that are in his social circle are, are similar to him, right, and they're similar potential customers. And that's why I think the, the social landing pages, especially for businesses, you know, can work out so well. Because generally once you find somebody who, who, you know, who at least is willing to give you their email address, the people around them are, are generally pretty similar. Um, yeah. And you can kind of, you know, spread like that. But way too often, you know, people – they're all about how it benefits that, right? Getting somebody to sign up is all about how it benefits, you know, you know, the business and not how it benefits, you know, you know, the end user, um, right. what they get. Even if it's something as simple as giving them something free or giving them, ten, you know, be the first to sign up and you get 10%, you know, that, that's an easy way of doing it. Um, it's probably not the best long-term solution, but if you can figure out and explain how your product is, you know, solve some pain point of theirs, um, you'd be much better off. And then other things that are helpful, if, you know, it's just ask the least number of questions as possible. Um, we have people all the time that build these forms with like 20 questions on it. And right. you, just, you just generally you don't need that, right? Unless like, you know, unless you're selling something to the, you know, to the enterprise and you're selling for $10,000 a month or something, you don't need right. their phone number or their address, right? You just need their email address. There's other services you can use that we use you know, for our customers where you can find all their social information and, you know, you can find everything about somebody based upon email address. There's a service out there that can tell you if somebody is like poor or bad credit generally just based upon their email address. It's, just, <laughs> it's, it's, it's scary, you know, what you can find. Um, so that's a good one to ask the least amount as possible. And then the other one is just to follow up as quickly as possible. 
Um, I can't tell you how many things I sign up for. And then three months later, I get an email from the person saying they're getting ready to launch or Uh-oh. there's some update or whatever. And I was like, what the heck? I, I don't even remember what I signed up for. Right. I just um, did that yeah, three too. Months ago. Yeah, so. yeah, keeping in touch with people on the mailing list. That's that's one of the things I'm trying to do with Snappy. Like we built this big mailing list and then during the beta, I was not as good as I should have been about regular updates. So now I'm going to try at least to, going forward to have at least some semi-regular updates to kind of keep people remembering who we are if nothing else and uh keep them engaged to some degree and hopefully send them you know some useful things so we'll see thanks scott for coming on yeah thanks know. a lot scott it's thanks for having me. it was fun <laughs> uh that's it for bootstrapped 14 um you can find us on itunes be sure to rate us and uh thanks for listening thanks and again scott, to scott scott is over at the kickofflabs.com Yep, kickofflabs.com. Check that out. Landing pages and so much more. Does CMS for the landing page, newsletters, all kinds of stuff. It it takes care of everything. It's uh, it's really sharp. So check that out. Okay. All right. We'll talk again next week. All right. All right. Let's do it. Bye. Bye. Bye.